Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, your additional hosts are Chris T. and Tara S., both of whom made donations to uh, help with the expenses here in the salon. And uh, so a big thank you goes out to Chris and Tara. I really appreciate your help. Now, uh, as uh, for today's talk, which is the completion of Terrence McKenna's talk under the uh, teaching tree at the Ojai Foundation... I'm still not sure who has sent it to me, but uh, on my Facebook page, uh, Jan Irvin posted a note that said, that's one I released from the SWR archives many years ago. Now, uh, I can't claim to uh, know what the SWR archives are, but uh, if you uh, were the ultimate source of this recording, Jan, well, uh, hey, thank you very much. Also, there was a, uh, a comment or an email from the Dusty Shaman about this McKenna talk, and he said, Lorenzo, isn't this talk from 1992? See Part 1, 3550-3620, where Terrence claimed his first DMT trip was in 66. Now, uh, again, I'm really not clear on how that reference uh, sets the date at 1992, but I am willing to agree that uh, the file I received, which was labeled 1985, could well be wrong. Uh, in fact, there's uh, another reference in the talk that we're about to hear that uh, also indicates to me that this talk was given sometime in the 1990s. But uh, in any event, I think you'll find the remainder of this workshop as uh, interesting as it was in the beginning. Now, I've actually got a big smile on my face as I'm uh, getting ready to play the rest of Terrence McKenna's Under the Teaching Tree talk because uh, I can't wait to hear it again myself. Uh, particularly his theory that crop circles are being made by Japanese tourists and that uh, people become schizophrenics because other people uh, treat them differently because they have a strange smell. (laughs) And, uh, hey, I'm not exaggerating here. Just wait and uh, you'll hear for yourself. Uh, And what the funniest thing to me is is that uh, he sounds completely serious about both of them. (laughs) Ah, the enigma that was the Bard McKenna. And uh, here he is now in Ojai, California on uh, a day in April 1985 or September 1992. Who knows? Uh, Anyhow, it was uh, some time ago. So let's join them now. Well, Danny and I last night were discussing like what this transcendental object, uh, we were enumerating a list of things that it could possibly be. Um, and as you say, the cast of reflection and, and so forth. H- how is it that, say, for example, the the Iwascaros, um in Pablo Amaringo's drawings, there's a UFO motif in one of his drawings. Um, what is that? You mean, do they see UFOs? Uh, what What are they? What? What, it, what is it that they see? When is it? Because they specifically identify this motif as um, separate from the rest of the drawings in one of uh, Shaman's drum magazines. Well, I'm I'm giving the UFO a, a slightly different status than this stuff I'm dumping on. I think the UFO is real, or that there is a real phenomenon. The problem is, what is? 
spiritual phenomenon. And it's a, why someone who sees a spinning disk in the sky assumes then an entire theology about friendly extraterrestrials mm -hmm. coming to help us out. Now, why do they assume that? What they've seen is a spinning disk in the sky, for crying out loud. Maybe what they saw was a spinning disk in the sky. Not the, There are two phenomena here which are entangled inextricably and unfortunately for the intellectually honest. There's the UFO. Who knows what that is? And then there's the UFO community. And the UFO community is just fraught with the most crack-brained, peculiar, self-serving, unstable, mush-minded group of people you would ever hope to get together in one place. I mean, it's like a magnet for screwballs. I mean, people who like to wear diamond tiaras and give themselves funny names and it has absolutely nothing to do with the tremendously fascinating and ambiguous phenomenon of strange things seen in the sky. I mean, I went through this not, I'm not talking as an outsider. I've seen, I had a UFO encounter that was uh, a deeper encounter than most of the people who run around pontificating about UFOs. And I will, at the risk of boring you yet again with this story, tell the story. I was in the Amazon. I was having all these revelations about uh, time and one thing and another. And I noticed... Um, a place in the sky where there was a spectrogrammatic diffraction of some sort. It wasn't a rainbow, it was a, a colored smudge in the sky. And uh, the, I was lightly but continually intoxicated on mushrooms during this period. And uh, it said, watch there. It was in the southwest. And I really didn't need to be told, but uh, it said, watch there. So I sat up one night, all night, on this rock by a lake, watching the southwest. And around 4.30 in the morning, with essentially a perfectly clear sky, except that off the Amazon jungle, um, local mist rises. And so about a mile and a half away from me on the horizon was a line of what looked to me like a little fog bank. And as light broke over this situation, I, could, I noticed, I couldn't tell whether it had been doing this or it began doing it as things got lighter, but I noticed that this fog bank was rolling in place like a pencil rolled between your fingers, which I had never seen a fog do that. I thought, what a strange thing. And as I watched it uh, stretched out across the horizon, it gently broke into four equal-sized pieces. So now I'm looking at four gray lenticular clouds spaced out along the horizon about a mile and a half away from me across this lake. So I'm watching, and I'm getting eager. 
and I'm and I'm getting excited. And as I watch these four lenticular clouds, two and two merge. Now I'm looking at two denser, grayer, dark gray, darker than storm clouds. These two things on the horizon. And as I watch, the four became two, the two become one. Uh, and at that point, faintly, I could hear the whee, whee, whee sound of 1950s science fiction UFOs, a la the day the Earth stood still, they came from outer space, so forth and so on. And I see, my God, this thing is starting toward me, and the sound is getting louder. And at that point, there was like a complete conversion in an instant. And my whole body went cold, and I realized uh, they're coming for me. <laughs> this is it, you know? Prepare to be beamed up, Scotty. And, uh, and I, I, everybody was asleep in a hut about 70 miles, uh, 70 feet up this mud embankment. I was down by the river and the lake, and I said, and it flashed in my mind, I have to get a witness. There must be a witness. And I looked, I looked over my shoulder at the mud bank. The thing was coming at me. I half stood up. My knees were so weak. I sat back down and I just prepared to depart this planet, this dimension. And as it came, I could see it, and it was getting closer and closer. I could see rivets on the underside. I could see the running lights. And as it got closer and closer, I realized that what I was looking at was the end cap of a 1932 Hoover vacuum cleaner. <laughs> the very end cap that George Adamski had suspended on a piece of nylon thread in his garage and photographed with his brownie instamatic to produce the famous UFO photograph of the UFO with the three balls on the underside and the, and the ribbing going around, right? That photograph has been utterly debunked. Computer analysis of it by modern techniques, it's bullshit. And there it was, 40 feet in diameter, coming at me across the Amazon treetops. Well, then, and I just went bananas at that point, and then it passed over not more than 200 feet above my head, turning slowly. I could see the, the three balls. I could see the everything. I could see it. And I understood then that what it was, was it was more shocking than a real UFO because it had its disconfirmation built into it. I was having an experience which you couldn't tell anybody about. What would the editor of We Love UFOs magazine say if you told him that story? He'd say, get out of here. You know, we don't print stories like that. We're interested in real you. Did it impart information to you of some sort? Because apparently you've been knighted the, the uh, 
person to speak about mushrooms in such a way that you're, you're actually, and some people do say that, that Terrence McKinnon may be an alien being himself, incarnate. <laughs> Well, only people who are in litigation with <laughs> I think what it was telling me, it was a perfect Zen lesson. It was saying, don't believe in UFOs. They're the end caps of 1932 Hoover vacuum cleaners expand to 40 feet in diameter and flying through your mind. Uh, so you have to question everything yeah, it's saying, you know, you can't replace one one stupid hypothesis, there aren't UFOs, with another stupid hypothesis, we're being visited by benevolent creatures from another world, you have to get a little more depth here if you want to be the alien ambassador. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the crop circles, I, I'm now less sure about the crop circles. Um, what I liked about them was that each, that they appeared at a certain point in time, and then each year there were more of them. And I figured that we could take how many there are each year and draw a curve and reach a conclusion about how far away in the future the source of them was. Because if they are, uh, it's almost as though uh, the UFO see leaves no trace. I mean, the burn marks on the ground, but already you're into dubiousness. Because who has ever seen these burn marks? Only the editors of these UFO magazines and their willing psychophants. I mean, you and I have not seen these burn marks. We've seen photographs of funny stuff on the ground, and we're told that's it. The crop circle leaves a trace that is enduring. But the problem there, the problem I have with the crop circles, and it's odd how you never hear this discussed, is that nobody has ever seen one come into existence. We get before, and we get after, but how come we never get during? Do they appear instantly? If they appear instantly, that would be pretty convincing. Just glance, it's not there. Glance, <laughs> glance, it's there. You would figure, yeah. Um, there's a... Uh, guy who's doing a lot of the research is Collins... Andrews doing a lot of research on this and I've got a recording and this is basically how he described it they were waiting and setting up to in this area to you know try and record some of this going on and this is opening up and uh, and all of a sudden you know the recorders are running and all of a sudden they all stand up because they're just incredibly strange, powerful sounding buzz of some kind that comes from far away, just comes zooming up and comes past them over this little rise that's next to them. Okay? And it takes them all of maybe, you know, 45 seconds or a minute to get to the top of the rise, and they're on the other side of the rise and proper, but it wasn't there when they started setting up. So apparently, you know, and Richard Hopeland talks about this too, don't give me stuff.
started. Okay. <laughs> oh, no, get me started. Lo bad works of art on a scale of miles are not what we should expect from uh, intelligent visitors from the stars. Um, here's what I... Let me... Isn't it a little weird? Let's... I mean... First of all, let me say, I'm open-minded against uh, about the crop circles. But let's also not be uh, silly. Isn't it a little peculiar that this phenomenon uh, appears within driving distance of the apartments of the people most likely to chronicle and proclaim it? as uh, a manifestation of telluric energy from another dimension. In other words, what if it had been happening in, in Turkmenistan? Then you would have something, but then how would John Michel and Colin Andrews and all these people have been able to make a living off of it? Uh, there are a number of things that are really weird about the crop circles. First of all, we're talking southern England here. The place is littered with RAF bases, nuclear weapons depots, intercontinental m missile delivery systems, so forth and so on. And we're asked to believe that the Ministry of Defense is utterly unconcerned about the fact that the airspace of Great Britain is being violated night after night after night by a mysterious agency that if it can snap the stem of a wheat stalk, could throw the switch on uh, an, an electrical device of some sort. The British establishment is utterly unconcerned by the crop circle. They're not necessarily Well, but wherever it's coming from, if you had a nuclear weapons depot, I think you would be Johnny at the raffle to find out what's going on. I, didn't, didn't you read, like last year or the year before, like these two guys came forward and said that they perpetrated oh, yeah. a hoax? Right, and all that did was muddy the waters. Well, it did one good thing. It finished the, it can't be done by human beings position. We now know, you know, Rupert and all these people, Rupert, believe it or not, is the plant pathologist who serves on the board of the seriologist, which is the main publication that is booming this. They held a contest in July where you paid 50 pounds, you were assigned a five-acre plot, you had from 10 at night until 4 in the morning, uh, there were, I think, 16 entries, everybody was given the same design, and uh, at dawn, judges helicoptered over the sites and then made the ground inspection. And uh, three of the contestants produced crop circles that were indistinguishable from the real thing. Beautiful crop circles. And I'm getting this from believers. You know, this is what Rupert reluctantly informed me of. Uh, I think that... Uh, and, you know, one theory is that it's a particle beam weapon being tested from space, but tested 750 <laughs> times in the last 18 months in the same small part of England. Yeah, they cover their track. 
I don't know. I, we tried. I came up with two theories that do not require telluric intervention or friendly extraterrestrials. First theory. A whole lot of people. First of all, it's killed the UFO industry in England. You can't give away UFO sightings at this point. So all of these people, you know, it all is happening near Glastonbury and down where the old earthworks are. It, it's occurring in an area where there is the largest concentration of people likely to hail it as a paranormal phenomenon on the surface of the earth. And uh, they have done so. They have made outrageous statements. Statements like, no human being could do this, it's impossible to explain this, so forth and so on. Well, now imagine that something like MI5, you know what that is, it's the English CIA, looks at the rise of paganism in Britain, uh, you know, earthworks, channeling, all of this stuff, and says, uh, this threatens church and state. We need to create a disinformation situation. Let's lure these people out onto a limb, way out onto a limb, and then let's cut the limb off. So what you do is you create this pseudo-paranormal phenomenon. You get John Mitchell, Colin Andrews, all these people to proclaim its weirdness. And then you reveal that it's easily duplicated. That's one theory. In other words, the British establishment is undercutting paganism by luring these people into saying too much. But that's not my favorite theory. My favorite theory is, is much better. Because the question is, how do you make these things? When you actually go to the crop circles, what do you see? This is a Sherlock Holmes type deal. You know, Sherlock Holmes could handle the crop circles. It's the arm tied behind his back, I think. When you go to the crop circles, here it is. The crop circle. Mysterious, unearthly, portending, who knows what. And what else is there? Well, the press and the sightseers and yourself and an extraordinary number of Japanese tourists. <laughs> now, economics. you're getting close. Uh, these Jap the Japanese press has followed the crop circle phenomenon more avidly than any other press in the world outside of England. Every new crop circle it appears, photographs and discussion, it is huge in Japan. Japan, they're obsessed with this stuff. I think that what might be going on, this is certainly a lot more likely than extraterrestrials or telluric forces. Do you all know what MITI is? It's the Ministry of Trade and Industry. It's this enormous organization in Japan which coordinates technological development and marketing. It's what we're talking about when we say Japan Incorporated. I think that this is a MIDI research project and that these Japanese tourists which are ever present at these sites 
some of them are drawn from a centuries-old tradition of ninja stem snappers who, at a given signal, are able to uh, hurl away their Nikons, rush into the corn, and in the matter of a few minutes, create these things, then put their cameras back on and their sunglasses back on and uh, take up their deep cover as Japanese tourists. Now, why would Mitty do such a thing? What's in it for them? It's a semiotics project. They are studying the impact of symbols on the Western mind. The, the closest thing to these crop circles if you look at a complete encyclopedia of them, are the pottery marks made by master potters in medieval Japan on their ceramics. Almost all of the crop circles, except the frivolous ones, like, for instance, how about the fact that the symbol of the Seriologist magazine was done in one of these things? I, I was at that one. The group. Yeah. These things, it's... It's got humor behind it. I mean, it's, a, it's a, a grand silliness of some sort. I'm willing to be proven wrong. I grappled with it like everybody else for six months, but the density of flakiness around it is incredible. And the number of people whose private agendas are being served by this. I mean, if it were happening north of Hudson Bay, there'd be no money in it. You have to be able to drive there from central London in, for it, in order for it to work. Well, then people always say, well, but it's happening all over the world, my good man. Haven't you heard? Show me. Show me. It's not happening all over the world. Some clumsy attempts appeared in Kentucky. And you know, there was something in Germany. And so forth and so on. But in it, it, the... It's really hair-raising to be among these people and to see how uncommitted to, to finding out what it is they are and how totally committed they are to preserving it from rational inspection. They don't want to talk about, you know, any alternative other than whatever the pet theory of the week is about how it's happening. Now, I see it as part of the ingression into novelty. Things are going to get weirder and weirder. There's no doubt about that. But it doesn't mean that there are, is uh, a conscious extraterrestrial agency. I mean, I find it pretty weird that there are 500 women who think they have fetuses removed <laughs> from their bodies by extraterrestrials. That's so weird that suggesting that it's true seems a little like overkill to me. I mean, what is going on that would make a woman uh, uh, do that sort of thing? <laughs> There's always, if you're, a, if you're a careful observer of one of these things, there's always, Jacques Vallée wrote about this, a residuum of absurdity that is suppressed by the witness because the witness knows that if they told the whole story, their story is not credible. This is called, you know, the built-in absurdity of these paranormal things. And when somebody tells you a story about a UFO encounter that does not have 
this element of self-contradicting absurdity in it. They're manipulating the evidence to make it seem more woo-woo-woo, I think. And I'm not, uh, I'm not a rationalist, except, uh, well, I've seen things that violated the laws of physics. I believe the laws of physics can be violated. I believe there may well be extraterrestrials somewhere in the universe. Do you believe the Voynich manuscripts may have something to do with the, some type of alien intelligence? No, I think the Voynich manuscript is a solved problem and that this guy Leo Levertov's translation is correct. What he found was, you know, it was a Catharite manual for the dying. That's much more exciting than trying to claim it as a book from another dimension, because now we gain an insight into what Catharism was really about. I think there is a residuum of the irrational and the paranormal, but these things like flying saucers and Atlantis and, uh, and the crop circles, they're like viruses upon the healthy body of language. You know, there's something wrong with language and communication uh, because it's never as you imagine it's going to be. And people are being sold a phenomenon that if they were to go, they would discover that aspects of it were suppressed or misrepresented. The people who are dealing with the cross circles are having a great time. It's the longest drinking party on record in that part of England. I guess I should say this, because I know it's a bummer to have your favorite uh, weird thing dumped on. <coughs> but my technique, which I recommend to you, is don't believe anything. If you believe in something, you are automatically precluded from believing its opposite. Therefore, you have given up a portion of your freedom, and freedom is the dearest thing we've got. You don't have to believe anything. You can just provisionally work your way through stuff. So, and then probe the edges. The, the, the edges will satisfy. Uh, I, I think that the proper way to contact the other is with hard-headed rationalism exercised under weird conditions. I went to India, visited some of these yoga people and accomplished saints. I'm telling you, for my money, it was hokum. It's, it was, there was an ulterior agenda either having the wish to relieve you of your cash or to violate some body cavity. Uh, that was the ulterior agenda. When I went to the Amazon with the same attitude of skepticism and talked to the shamans there, they delivered the goods. If somebody... So you just, you just investigate these things and the key question is, what can you show me? If they've got it, they can show it. There's no mumbo-jumbo around the real thing. 
But if they say, oh, well, you know, uh, the tape recordings miraculously erased themselves last night. Or we'll show you, but you have to sweep up around the ashram for a dozen years to prove you're worthy. Or, you know, you are not worthy. That's the one where you head for the door. You are not worthy. Uh, the real thing is the real thing for crying out loud. It can be displayed. It doesn't require this weird, fuzzy relationship of worth and insight and so forth and so on. And I, and that's how I got to psychedelics psychedelics work if you think that I'm bullshitting you go home and take five grams of mushrooms in silent darkness and then we'll talk that's the sine qua non but uh, it, it'll work on demand I'm not saying and wait 40 years or purify yourself or fix, get your aura stitched up or any of the rest of it it'll work It'll blow your mind to shreds. It's real. This other stuff is just, you know, all these gurus, they need to find honest work. They need to join the rest of us in contemplating the mystery of reality. They don't know what they're talking about. If they knew what they were talking about, they wouldn't have to shuffle the deck when you're out of the room. And that's what's going on. Somebody must be outraged and terribly disappointed. Yeah. Getting back to the DMT. Yeah. You have the same experience each time you take it under similar conditions. Do other people report the same things, the same teaching machines? And how does it relate to near death experience on the other side? In order. Yes, I do have the same experience each time I take it. Do they say nice to see you again? They say you've sent so many that you come so rarely. <laughs> and then the more interesting question, do, do other people see it? Yeah, do I get a commission? Uh, do other people see it? What I've, I've thought about this question a lot because it's a question of communication. If they saw it, could they tell me? If they told me in their language, would I understand what they were telling me? And what I've decided is that the, the experience is an archetype. It's the archetype of the circus. Why? Don't ask me why. I don't know why. But... For instance, I've listened to many, many people talk about their DMT experiences, and inevitably, this is the box into which it will fit. I gave it to a woman once up in Washington, uh, an anthropologist. It was a sub-threshold dose because she coughed. I could tell she didn't get it. And when she came down, she said, it was the saddest carnival I've ever been to. She said there were no, the rides weren't open. The tents were shuttered and there were little gum papers blowing between the, between the things, uh, the stands. The circus is an interesting archetype because it has a number of facets. First of all, you have the three central rings 
under the big top. That's the dome. Uh, and in the central ring, there's light and color and clowns. Remember that Maria Sabina called the mushrooms the little clowns. Uh, and these clowns, uh, the circus is for children. And when you take DMT, one of the things I didn't mention in my description of it is you have a peculiar impression of your own body geometry. Your head seems to be very large in relationship to your torso. You are, in fact, an infant in some sense. You become a child. This leads to thinking about the 52nd fragment of Heraclitus, which says, the aeon is a child at play with colored balls. Nobody knows what this saying means, but it's persisted for about 3,000 years. So it must mean something. But outside the three rings, there's another aspect to the circus. It is spun into eros because above the center ring and up near the top of the dome is the beautiful woman in, with long blonde hair and the tiny skimpy spangled costume and very complicated narrative type dream and the alarm rings and by the time your feet hit the floor and you stagger into the shower it's gone it's not partially gone it's all gone and all you can say is, I was having this amazing dream. I, I have no idea what it was. The DMT thing can leave you just that quickly. And also, and I think this has a bearing on this, they have studied the production of DMT in normal metabolism, and it peaks in normal human beings between 3 and 4 a.m., this is when the deep dreaming is going on. This is when the intense REM states are being experienced. So I think that where the dead and the living get together is in the dream time. Australian Aborigines have been trying to tell us this for as long as we would listen. Uh, and also, a lot of people, it, it's it's possible to repress it very, very quickly. I think, for instance, I've seen people, one way you can tell if someone has really gotten a good DMT trip is they lay down, they become very still, but if you look closely at their face with their eyes closed, you can see that their eyes are moving wildly underneath their closed eyelids. This is because they're in, a, in REM state and they are watching the, the whatever it is they're seeing. They are looking at it. I, I remember giving DMT to a person years and years ago, a person who might have been a candidate for the description psychologically fragile. And it was clear that she got it because she was a hash smoker and she took three or four enormous hits, laid down, her eyes were wildly rotating around in her head. When she came out of it, said, what was it? Said, it was nothing. I don't remember anything. I don't remember anything at all. And furthermore, 
I don't think I want to have anything more to do with you. <laughs> and didn't. Well, I think that that this is something that you, it only shows as much of it as you can stand. And some of us cannot stand much at all. This is this occurs with psilocybin as well. I've had experiences with psilocybin where I've said to it after hours of hallucinations of one sort or another, I finally say, you know, what I'm really interested in is your true essence. Can you show me what you are for yourself rather than for me? What are you for yourself? Well, then it's just like a cold wind blows through and black velvet curtains begin to rise. And after 30 seconds of this, you just say, uh, that's enough of what you are for yourself. Because you can tell it's headed in a direction you can't tolerate at all. You can't stand. I have a friend who said of psilocybin, he said, my goal every time I take it is to stand more of what it really is. And this is why it's incredibly kind to beginners. Beginners basically need have no fear if they will regulate the dose reasonably because it wants to recruit you. And so it says, you know, here it is, whatever you wanted, aliens, outer space, elves, erotic imagery, here it is. Doesn't this feel safe? See, we're not so bad. We're your friend. We're not like all the others. Come back soon. It's after you gain familiarity with it where it says, you know, there are aspects to me that we've never really talked about. So, yeah, like what? Well, like this. Oh. oh, no. Let's go back to the Disney loop. How close is the uh, DMT that you smoke um, compared to the brain DMT that we all have running through? Um, is there different, like, NN dimethyltryptamine and what's in our brain? Can no, no, it's the same thing. Exactly the same? It's the same thing. DMT it occurs in two forms, the salt and the hydrochloride. And, uh, and uh, both forms occur... Well, no, I'm not sure that both forms occur in metabolism, but the only difference is that one is water-soluble and the other is... So basically, then again, we are whole, then, I mean... If it's if DMT is illegal, then what we have in our brain running through us is considered illegal. Yeah, we are potentially bustable. You know, in light of what I said, one of the most interesting frontiers that the New Age has brought forward that I think bears more serious study than the channelings of Amenhotep's barber and all that uh, is lucid dreaming. Yeah. Lucid dreaming, if it I don't know whether those people, I don't know those people personally, I don't know what their motivation is, but if it's true that you can take control of the dream state, then this would be something worth spending even a lot of time on, because uh, the dream state is more like the tryptamine geography than anything else. One of the most fascinating things about DMT that should certainly be mentioned as long as we're exhausting ourselves on this subject mm -hmm. 
is uh, once you've had DMT, once you've smoked it and this experience has occurred, you can have a dream years later in which you're with a bunch of people and something's going on and you enter the atrium of the Hotel California and you take a floor to the basement or some, and then you're in a room with people and someone whips out a little glass pipe and you smoke it and it happens. It doesn't sort of happen. It happens. A hundred percent. That means that's exciting data because that means that we have the wherewithal to trigger this experience in ourselves on the natch at least while we're asleep and I presume that with sufficient patience and subtlety and biofeedback equipment and I don't know what you would take but if you spend a million dollars, you could probably deliver it on time. Mm -hmm. uh, we can trigger this most intense of all hallucinogenic ecstasies, most boundary-dissolving of all possible human experiences, on the Natch. But we have to somehow find our way to the button. And apparently, in normal waking consciousness, it isn't there. I spend a lot of time, I mean, I didn't mean to be so flip about the UFOs. I've spent years trying to think about the UFOs and studied all the theories. One that I still may be part of the truth is maybe it is so that we generate and sequester DMT somewhere in our brain and under unusual situations, this sequestered DMT can suddenly be dumped into the brain fluid or into the bloodstream, and then you have a DMT experience or some kind of quasi-DMT-like experience because I read an interesting paper a few years ago. I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote it. It was an anthropological paper. It was called The Felt Presence in Unusual Environments. And it talked about how it is apparently a basic trait of human beings to win in the wilderness, especially unfamiliar wilderness. People sense something there the felt presence in unusual environments. Well, it may be that... Um, now, imagine if you're in the wilderness in a situation not entirely familiar to you so that you're edging up toward this felt presence thing and suddenly DMT stored in your brain is for some reason, uh, perhaps a pathological reason that it uh, shouldn't happen, but it's shunted into your brain. Well, now, suddenly, you feel there's something here. There's someone here. There's someone with me. The hair on the back of your neck stands up. And then you see coming towards you a disturbance in your perceptual field. Now, you're supposed to be alone. There isn't supposed to be a disturbance in your perceptual input. But there is you are alarmed. It may be dangerous. You must identify what this is. 
Well, every one of us carries around inside us a cultural inventory of what weird events might possibly be. If you're a medieval peasant farming the hills of Tuscany, and this happens, you immediately conclude that it's the Virgin, or it's an angel. And lo and behold, as it comes closer, it clothes itself in heavenly raiment, and it is the Virgin. And so you are encountering the Virgin. Well, now, what if you're a Southern California steeped in the religious faiths of Malibu, and this happens to you? You will conclude, my God, it's a UFO. I mean, haven't you been with people who every airplane that flies over, they're willing to proclaim is an extraterrestrial intervention? It's because this explanation lies very close to the surface. When we don't know what something is, we want to know, we want to English it, we want to name it, and we grasp the nearest thing at hand. It's very important to avoid this reflex in order to see what is it really? What is it really? Let it be what it is. Yeah. Uh, four small points. On that one, I noticed I did a book in 73 on the slap of And I interviewed perhaps 500 people. And in a large number, they start with it. It's a traditional poetic term. No, it's called negative parallelism, where you identify, negate, identify, negate. So they start, it looked like a low-flying plane. No, it was too low. It looked like a semi with its out-of-order lights on. And only as the third or fourth identification, which is traditional to classic tropes of the 13th century, would they identify it as my God is here. Point one. Uh, another one, the strangest one, was an old lady in Texas. And I said, how did you know it was a UFO? And she said, because it had UFO printed on the undercast. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, next one was a judge. I went down to Pascagoula with the Hickson and Parker. Famous episode. case. I've got to see them again because I want to see how they've done over Very interesting case. And the judge and the clerk of courts and two other people were riding home during that period. And two of them in the car saw a UFO and the others couldn't see it. So let's say one saw it because of the EMT drop of some kind. Another was his clerk and decided he'd better see it. And the other two were just strange. Um, la last point. Um, there's a guy called Orfeo Angelucci, oh, yeah. who was an early contactee, who uh, gave me a useful handle on kind of talk about working the edges. He was out and he met the captain of the ship, and the ship's captain said during the interview, would you go and get me a bottle of soda pop? And then they went on with their event. So I began looking for what I called the soda pop factor, you know, that where there was an element or more than one element absolutely unrelated to the story. This was somehow a, a touch of human... Uh, An intrusion. Intrusion, yeah. Uh -huh. Necessary intrusion. Well, let me say one thing about it. You don't even have to be cynical to the point of believing in the Pascagoula situation that the second guy saw the UFO because he was the clerk. These uh, drug molecules have, uh, uh, free, have resonant rings. They are aromatics. It may be that there's a pheromone thing happening here and that a state of mind can be transferred to one per from one person to another through body odor. Uh, this may be how the states of telepathy are achieved um, 
on psilocybin because you do smell funny and this smell may be more than funny it may be carrying uh, information there's a very interesting phenomenon that is well documented called allophrenia do you all know what allophrenia is allophrenia is when a friend of yours gets put in the hospital for schizophrenia and you being a good Samaritan decide to take them a box of candy and during the visit to your friend you behave so bizarrely that you don't get to leave the hospital allophrenia <laughs> schizophrenic behavior on the part of non-schizophrenics in the presence of schizophrenics I've experienced this I had a friend I visited him in the hospital and and the way here's how it works it's really interesting <laughs> I, I visited my friend in the hospital he was nutty as a fruitcake but he was my friend and he was talking 90 to nothing so I wanted to communicate with him so instead of saying to every single statement he made I don't understand you you're nuts that makes no sense whatsoever I began trying to agree with him trying to understand him and then it sort of got the momentum of a game going where he would say you know I'm really Sirhan Sirhan and I would say yes but your teacup is on backwards and a doctor walking into this situation would have a hard time telling who's nuts and who's not well was that because I decided to play along with him or why did I decide there was an ambiance that gave permission for erratic irrational peculiar behavior and I suppose if you were borderline schizophrenic in that situation that's all it would take to, to push you over the edge do you think I, I know you're probably thinking about that Wiener's ECM stuff yeah. you told me about it yourself but I, I finally just recently read all those papers again and I think you're really right that there is some uh, sub it's what he calls the olfactory subconscious that there is perception below what is olfactorily normally perceived and this is profound uh, information transformation uh, messages that are perceived and stuff yeah I think that there could be something to yeah people who study human behavior have noted that when a person enters a room full of people unconsciously the first thing they do is they take a deep breath what that's doing is giving you a whole bunch of information and you can tell you can say I walked into the room and the vibes were terrible because Herbert had just slugged Alice uh, three minutes before and everybody was freaking out about it or I just walked into the room and I could tell something weird was happening but I couldn't figure out what it was and what it was was Alice and Fred heard me coming so he took his hand out of her blouse as I opened the door this kind of thing in other words information that is coming in uh, through the olfactory senses there are psychiatrists who diagnose schizophrenia by what they call the sniff test you know this is one of the most subtle and difficult of all mental dysfunctions to diagnose 
And some people just lean over your anterior fontanelle and take a hit and say, him to therapy, her to release, and him to medication because they are confident enough that the smell will do it. There's even one theory of schizophrenia that holds that what schizophrenia is is a, uh, a dysfunctional pheromone system so that y you, who are the schizophrenic, your real problem is that you smell funny, not stink. People aren't aware of that, but it's that there's something about you that causes people to treat you strangely. And you, reacting to being treated strangely by people, get weirder. And they, reacting to you getting weirder, treat you more and more strangely. So what you have here is a feedback cycle that ends with nets being dropped over you and you taken away. But the original cause was that there was uh, you were giving off a chemical which made people treat you in a way that caused you to react to them adversely and that started the cycle going. Or, or they say that you perceived olfactory hallucinations. Not that you just smelled weirdly, but that you perceived. Oh, that you were misinterpreting incoming. That's right. There's oh, a whole section yeah. here talks about olfactory hallucinations. The reason we're talking so much about this is because if you look at these pheromone molecules and lay them next to these drug molecules, it's all one family. These are all small, planar molecules. There's even one area where it comes together pretty spectacularly. That is, in the pineal gland of human beings, there's a great deal of, uh, like, something like 12% um, of the brain's energy is being channeled into the pineal gland. Well, if you know anything about evolutionary theory, you know that you don't waste energy in unnecessary functions or you become extinct. So there's a reason why 12% of the brain's energy is being channeled into the pineal gland, though we don't know what it is. Well, then when you look at what's going on in the pineal, uh, uh, a neuro a neural compound called adenoroglomerotropane is being transduced by light into melatonin. Well, this compound, adenoroglomerotropine, in ordinary biochemical nomenclature, is 6-methoxy-tetrahydrohormolan. It's a near relative of the compounds in the ayahuasca. Well, so then a reasonable question is to ask, well, then what's happening to all this melatonin? that is being produced in the pineal. Well, then if you tag it and follow its path through the metabolic system, you discover that the stuff is making its way quite directly to the surface of the skin. And then it's volatilizing away. What's happening here? A, a hallucinogenic molecule is being turned into a and in the very center of the brain, and this pheromone is then hurrying on its way to the surface of the skin where it volatilizes off and affects uh, the ambient social environment in which you're living. This begins to look like a system of neurotransmitters and neuroregulators that operate not only within the body, but on the surface of the body and in the ambient social environment.
Yeah. I don't know if this relates to, I'm not a chemist or anything like that. There was this stuff on the market called tryptophan, I believe. Right, and it's an it amino acid. Amino acid, and it was taken off the market not too long ago. Yes. And um, supposedly it made you dream, your dreams more clear or more vivid, something like that. Well, it's the precursor for DMT. If you were to make, if you wanted to make trip DMT in the laboratory, tryptophan would be one of the pathways that you could start from. Uh, the reason tryptophan was taken off the market, there was a lot of confusion initially, but it was a poisoned batch. It turned out all of the world's tryptophan was coming from one enormous stainless steel vat near Nagoya, and that it had been infected by a bacterium. And uh, so, you know, we're stuck with the fact that tryptophan will probably never again be available in health food stores. But it wasn't tryptophan that was the culprit. I knew someone whose life was completely messed up. By From the tryptophan? From the poisoned tryptophan. From the poisoned tryptophan. So, by taking the tryptophan, then it, it caused DMT to be more... Well, no, saying it that way is saying too much. We don't know that. All we can say is tryptophan is an amino acid. It's used in the biosynthesis of many different compounds, including DMT. DMT peaks when dream states are peaking, and tryptophan does seem to induce deeper dreaming. It's a rational case. You know, we could sit here, sometime we could have a weekend entirely devoted to thinking of uh, simple experiments that could be done in the laboratory with and without human beings if only these things weren't illegal. I mean, there is so much to be learned and so little work being done because it's not sanctioned. I mean, my brother is a pharmaceutical chemist, pharmacologist, plant physiologist, and his professional life is very touch and go because he's known to be a hallucinogen man. And they don't, they don't hire you, they don't publish you, they don't fund you, they don't want to know. You have to be a very dedicated person to stick with hallucinogenic chemistry when you could get over into something else and make a lot of money. So you don't see a conspiracy then with the tryptophan being taken off the market because it made dreams being more vivid. You see it as just a bad batch. I mean, I made the connection without just thinking that I'm not a conspiracist, but it seemed to me awfully funny that that was taken off of the thing made by one batch and that batch got... With or well, there may have been some form of hanky-panky, but in all fairness, you know, there are many approaches to the synthesis of DMT. Indole is probably what a, a, most chemists would probably prefer to start from indole. And indole is an industrial uh, precursor used in so many hundreds of ways that you could never push indole off the market. You'd have to reinvent half the pharmaceutical industry. But, but where I'm going with that is, I'm talking about just being able to get it from the health food store. Here was tryptophan, and uh, it made your dreams vivid, more vivid. Um, I don't know if that's what people are using it for, and I think so, but here it was, so maybe they, they felt that 
uh, people were dreaming too much, and so we got, or they were having too vivid dreams. That, hey, we can't have this anymore. We've got to sort of get it off the market. Maybe I think probably as long as you're asleep, they're fine about yeah. it. It's when you wake up that they get nervous. <laughs> uh, as long as you keep your eyes closed or you're glued to the boob tube, they're quite happy to minimalize you, marginalize you, and make you larval. Yeah. Um, I wanted, I was thinking about this thing with the, um, the elves and so forth, um, and I was also thinking about it in relationship to, you know, let's say you smoke TMT, you have the experience, you can put the term elves on them or speculate that what we have in various mythologies or uh, thought systems, elves, refers to that. I was wondering what you think about... Um, you know, other types of deities that people may encounter in some sort of visionary experience, either with hallucinogens or not. I mean, what, what do you make of that? Do you have more of an archetypal interpretation, or do you think that they exist in some hyperdimensional uh, reality uh, in some form? Or I'm just curious what I, you make I of that. I guess I have an archetypal interpretation. I recall from some book of Robert Anton Wilson's where he he suggests, he says you should, uh, you should pray to the Blessed Virgin Mary every day and offer, make offerings to her and put up her picture until she appears. Then switch to Shiva and do it till Shiva appears. Then Mickey Mouse. And just keep doing this until you satisfy yourself that none of these things are more real than any other, and that whatever their ontological status, they're all equal in ontological status. Apparently, the human brain is far more malleable than we can conceive of or imagine. We become imprisoned within a language and an ideology and it literally becomes uh, our reality. And yet it isn't our reality. Uh, it, it's just something provisional. I've not had that experience. I prayed for years as a kid, but perhaps the agonbite of Inuit was already present in me and making it impossible for me to succeed. But in the case of the, the elves, there's a... Uh there's sort of a cultural archetype of the elves, but at the same time, you seem to be saying that that there is a deeper reality that, that, that this is based on. In other words... Well, and the DMT elves are a lot weirder than the Disney elves. The Disney elves are really sanitized. These things are pretty frightening in a way. I mean, they are if you let yourself be frightened, because they're, you can't... They want... Well, how can I put it? They play too rough. They are not... They are not mean, but they're not careful either. It's like hanging out with a gang, you know? As long as you're their friend, you really feel, aren't I cool? Look who I'm hanging out with. But then you realize if you said the wrong word or made the wrong move, everybody would turn and look at you and just... The, I, I recently wrote the introduction for a new edition of Evans Vent's book, The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries. And if you're interested in elves, this is the book to read. 
you all know who Evans Vance was. He was the great Tibetologist who... But as a student at Cambridge in 1913, before he went to Tibet, he did his doctoral thesis, 1913 this was, and he went around to Brittany and Wales and Ireland to the old, old people. I don't think he talked to anybody under 80. And he said, tell me stories about fairies. And he collected the most amazing stories about fairies and fairy encounters. And I learned from rereading that book that, you know, the, no, the Christian notion of purgatory, which is a place where you go that is neither heaven or hell, where you do time for minor infractions and then you get moved on to heaven. This idea was created, I always assumed that it was dreamed up by some bishops of Rome, some synod or something. It was dreamed up by St. Patrick to convert the pagan Irish, to convince them that fairyland was part of the Christian map. And he was so successful in converting the pagan Irish that when letters went back to Rome describing how he did it, Purgatory became a general doctrine of the church, and then it was used very successfully to convert the pagan Slavs. So purgatory is fairyland dressed up in Christian terminology. And, and what is the idea of fairyland? It's the idea that the dead live all around us, linger among us as disincarnate souls, and they can they and the fairies that Evans Vance was describing were very ambiguous morally. I mean, sometimes they would only sour the milk, but you know their favorite concern of fairies is uh, UFO freaks pay attention stealing babies. That's what fairies like to do. I don't know about surgically ripping off fetuses. That seems to be a modern touch. But in Ireland, people in the countryside do not leave babies, small babies, unattended in their cribs for fear of fairy theft. And the fairies substitute. They don't just leave an empty crib. They leave a withered, strange little creature that is supposed to fool the human beings and whenever there is a child born who is wasting and old looking and undersized there's always the assumption that there was a healthy baby there but now there's been a fairy switch uh, fairies respond to riddlery this has to do with this thing about language and the strange relationship of the Irish to intoxication, fairies, and language suggests that here we might have a restricted gene pool that has somehow indemnified itself in the direction of these peculiar uh, concerns. Present company accepted. What was the name of that book then? The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries by Evans Vance. Um, at least a couple of final points, which is, you know, what is this all good for? I, th I think what it's good for, I think the mystery that we're making our way toward 
much more of which will be revealed later as we live into the next 20 years, is that we have lost connection to a very important part of reality, which I call the Gaian mind, but what, which I think is more popularly understood as the goddess, goddess consciousness. But the goddess is not as envisioned by, at Ephesus, you know, a woman studded with breasts. The goddess is the living earth. It is not to be anthropomorphosed into uh, some kind of human or quasi-human form. And when we were taking mushrooms on the plains of Africa, before the invention of agriculture, as nomads, we were uh, rocked in the cradle of the goddess. And the you know differences between men and women, between parents and children, between those who had much, if anybody had much, and those who had little, and between human beings and the animal and vegetable kingdom were minimal because everything operated in the light of this reference experience, boundary dissolution and a sense of the intelligence of the earth. Now we are so alienated from the intelligence of the earth that when we encounter it, we assume it came from halfway across the galaxy to rescue us. It isn't from across interstellar space. It's something that is partially in ourselves and partially in the world around us. And if we could but clear the prejudices of materialism from our uh, approach to the world, most especially from our language, which by its subject-object bias, by its linear syntax, and by God knows what else that's built into it, hopelessly precludes us from contacting this, uh, this reality. If we could clear all that away, we would discover, you know, a dimension of immense support and affection for human beings and for our enterprises. But as long as we pursue the destruction of the earth and the elaboration of materialist ideology and the suppression of psychedelic states and the suppression of the feminine, uh, we are going to be alienated, feel abandoned, and operate in an ambiance of rampant pathology. So, uh, to my mind, the, the hallucinogens are a call to return to the archaic style, to recapture the tools, techniques, languages, and attitudes that existed and flourished on this planet, uh, you know, before A.D. 10,000. And we must do this. If we don't do this, uh, then we are setting ourselves up for a very unhappy future. We are living in a very unhappy world. Maybe your world is not unhappy, 
but you know, tell that in Bosnia, tell it in Somalia, tell it to the AIDS-infected masses of Africa. Uh, the apocalypse is no longer a rumor. It's arrived in many parts of the world. And we, as the children, the inheritors of the culture which created this catastrophe, and as the people who are still above high, uh, still living on high ground, as the waters of poverty, epidemic disease, and misery rise ever higher, have a certain obligation to respond to this. Moral decency demands it. And we can no longer tolerate uh, the evolution of consciousness, the exploration of our relationships to each other, and the source of meaning itself to be regulated, stigmatized, and uh, degraded by the most frightened, the least educated, the least uh, balanced, and the least caring among us. And this is what we've got at the present moment. The male dominator uh, mentality is in the process of running us and all life on this planet into extinction. Uh, I don't have answers. That must be clear by now. I have questions and offer techniques. And there's nothing new about these techniques. They have been around for 100,000 years. And for 90,000 of those 100,000 years, they worked very well. And we existed in harmony with the rest of nature, fully human, fully able to philosophize, argue, love, riddle, perform theater, make masks, so forth and so on. But in the last 10,000 years, we have fallen into a pathology. And it's because the umbilical connection to the mind in nature has been severed, lost, pissed away, ignored, degraded, turned away from. It is a psychedelic relationship to these plants. Without that, you are not yourself. Without that, you are half human. And this is how we behave. We behave as though, you know, we have a soul, but it's stapled in Yeats' immensely compelling phrase to the body of a dying animal. This needs to be corrected, reconstructed, addressed. Otherwise, we are going to go into the books, if there are books, and into the cosmic record, which there surely is a cosmic record, as jerks, lame, didn't get it, couldn't put it together. And this would be a terrible legacy, because we are not going into these crises with, in a state of total anesthesia. We have the answers. We have the political machinery to do something about this. We have the sense of crisis. We have the goodwill and affection for each other. But we are somehow unable to put all this together in a configuration that would allow us to change our minds, admit that history was a bad idea, that science betrayed us, that it's a tale told by an idiot, and uh, to strike out in a new direction. 
we're like the frog in the proverbial pot who never moves as the temperature uh, climbs toward the boiling point. Sooner or later, you have to just get up on your hind legs and say, enough already. Now, maybe this is beginning to happen, and maybe it isn't. But it's not for us to judge as spectators at a hockey game. It's for us to get in and roll up our sleeves and participate in. Do what you think is right. Think about what you think is right. And once you've thought about it, then do it. And it doesn't have to fit in with my program or my agenda. I have a deep and abiding faith faith that Mother Nature will sort out the options and from the offerings of all of us select those that will be salvational and salutary for all the rest of us. But if you don't act, you didn't participate. I mean, this is not a roadshow, you know. It's your life, your planet, your world, and the tools to reclaim it are present at hand. You've heard this now. Now you have to ask yourself, what are you going to do about it? That's really all I have to say, and we're finished. Yeah. Right. So thank you very much. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, uh, what can anyone say after that rousing close? Uh, as Terence just said, if you don't act, you didn't participate. I mean, this is not a road show, you know. It's your life, your planet, your world, and the tools to reclaim it are present at hand. You've heard this now. Now you have to ask yourself, what are you going to do about it? Well, uh, those are really some words to think about, aren't they? And uh, I'll leave you to your own thoughts about uh, those burning questions in a couple of minutes. But first, I've got a few other comments that I'd like to add. So, I'll bet that when you heard that part where uh, Terrence was talking about uh, drugs and mental states being passed through gases in the air, that, like me, you remembered some of the times when either you or people you were around had what is uh, commonly called a contact high. I've seen it happen many times myself. In fact, it's even happened to me. So, I know that the feeling is uh, very much the same as uh, taking a substance yourself. And so maybe there's a little more to the contact high here than uh, meets the eye. Maybe uh, when we say there's a good vibe in the air, uh, we're actually sensing the off-gases or pheromones of the whole group's drug experience. Now, uh, there's something that our scientists should be testing, and uh, I'm sure there'd be no trouble getting volunteers for a study like that. Now, without getting way off track here... uh, What Terrence said about nobody having ever seen a crop circle come into existence on his own was uh, possibly true back when he said it, but uh, today that's no longer the case. And if you want to follow up on that, uh, or if you're simply interested in the crop circle phenomena, a good place to start your investigation might be on Neil Kramer's website, The Cleaver, which you can find at uh, thecleaver, all one word, dot blogspot dot com. And it's really too bad that Terrence isn't still with us because uh, I'm sure that he would be astounded by some of the new information about crop circles that has uh, come to light recently. And I'm sure that I heard Neil tell about a case where a circle was observed to come into existence without any humans nearby. 
And uh, I think there's even a video of that event that uh, so far has held up to scrutiny. Interesting things, those uh, crop circles. Uh, but until I can walk in one myself, uh, one that's obviously not created by using any uh, currently known technology that uh, bends the rapeseed stalks over without breaking them, well, once I've been uh, in a circle like that myself, then uh, I guess I'm going to have to come to some better conclusion than my current one about where they come from. You ready for my current thinking? <laughs> well, I think that maybe they're being made by adolescent entities in some higher dimension. They're just uh, young, semi-delinquent beings who are tagging the earth like gang members do in the inner city. And you know they've got to be really uh, cracking up at all the theories about uh, where these circles are coming from. Uh, <laughs> maybe we should be glad that their parents aren't getting involved, too. So, how does that compare to uh, Terence's theory about ninja Japanese stem-snapping tourists uh, being the circle makers? <laughs> I like mine better, but uh, I'd rather see Terence's version take place, uh, just because it would make a great YouTube video. <laughs> Well, there are a couple of other things I should probably cover, uh, such as uh, what's up with the potential get-together in London with Bruce Damer uh, next summer. And uh, for sure, Bruce is going to be there. I think there's an event already getting uh, you know, solidified somehow, maybe two. And uh, I may be there myself. Uh, and by next week, uh, hopefully I'll have a little bit more information to report on that front. But right now, I've got to get back to uh, resurfacing my MatrixMasters.com website, where I'm rolling my previous eight years of posting to uh, over a dozen different blogs on that site. Uh, I'm going to roll them all into a single WordPress blog that uh, should make it a little easier to find things in the future. Uh, so this will do it for now, and uh, I'll close by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And if you are interested in the philosophy behind the Psychedelic Salon, you can hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as an audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Into the light.